reminder, um, I know there's kids in the room. Feel free to stand up, do whatever you need to do. Um, this is part of a family-friendly service. All right, so if you've been with us this Advent season, you know that we have been walking through Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. But tonight and tomorrow, we're going to transition left, I guess, in the Bible a long way uh, from, Luke, from the Gospel of Luke to Isaiah. This evening, we're going to look at a passage, probably the most famous of all the prophecies uh, in Isaiah, which, what do you think it would be? Isaiah 53, somebody said it, the suffering servant. So uh, there are a lot of prophecies in Isaiah that God uses to prepare his people for the coming king. And we have promises about a king, about a shepherd, about a priest, about the better King David, about the, uh, the shoot out of the stump of David. So there are all these prophecies about the coming king, who he, who he is, what he would do, how the people would know him. And then you get to 53, and if you just look at it at face value, it can be a little bit confusing. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. To the original reader, that would have been a little confusing. That would have raised, you know, ruffled some brows. This, you know, what in the world is going on that the coming one would be a servant, that he would be despised? How does this work? I mean, it's counterintuitive to what we know a king to be. A king isn't a servant. He doesn't suffer. A victorious king is not despised by his people. People don't hide, from, hide their faces from him in, in embarrassment of their king. This, this doesn't seem to fit what the people would want and expect in this coming Savior. So how is it that the greatest king that this world would ever know, who will come one day and reign for all eternity over us, how is it that this king would suffer this week? I uh, spent a lot of time in this text, and I, I really did want to preach a full sermon on, on this. I, I really, I felt like I got into it, and, and there, there's so much there. When you ask the, the question, why is suffering one of the main requirements for this coming king? But I know I can't do that. We've got kids in the room, short attention spans, Christmas Eve dinners to get to, so I'm going to limit it to just one hour I'm just kidding. It will be a short message, and I want to get right to the point. And I want, to, I want us to see in this passage, why is it that this king would suffer? And what is it that suffering will show us about the king? Two things. First, the king suffered to know his people better. What is the most, or at least one of the most important characteristics of a king? that he would know his people, that he would know their plight, that he would understand the things that their people needed. I mean, this is one of the reasons, right? The main reason we had a revolutionary war. We didn't want some king on the other side of the world who didn't understand the plight of the people over here and taxed us unfairly. We wanted our own ruler. And some of the most beloved people in history are beloved because they had some privilege or power or authority and they willingly gave up that privilege, that power, their preferences to enter into the suffering of other people. This brings to mind people like Mother Teresa, 
This is one of the big reasons that Martin Luther King resonated with so many African-Americans. He got their plight. He understood what they were doing and he understood their needs. On the other end of the spectrum, this is one of the reasons that bad leaders, bad kings like Mussolini were ousted and publicly executed because he didn't care about the needs of his people. He didn't know the needs of his people. He wanted to be in charge so that he could have power and stay in power and gain more power. But in Jesus, we have a king who knows us better than we know ourselves. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So when the king came in, he doesn't just carry his own griefs and his own sorrows. He is bearing our griefs and our sorrows as well. And we have griefs and sorrows. My goodness, in this world, and we have them because we are fallen people living in a fallen world. We have rebelled against our king, and all these things, these pains, these sorrows, these griefs, they exist because of our sin at a, at a general level. This is why there's pain in the world. And the sorrows and griefs that we experience take us to verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So this is all of us. It, it, it isn't just some other people who are worse than others and bring problems in the world. We're the problem in this world. But Jesus, he did not deserve the sorrow and the grief. He came to bear our sorrows. So, I mean, just imagine the humiliation of being in very nature God, being in very nature God and taking on the form of a human the world has never known more humility than that act. He left perfection to enter into pain, to be tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. You know, we give up. He didn't. He endured that temptation and never capitulated to it. I think I said this a few months ago, and I draw it from C.S. Lewis, but if our battle against sin were like a climb up a steep mountain, we give up. But Jesus, he knew, knows the pain of 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, an hour later, because he did not give in to, this, into that temptation. So he not only gets our temptation, he gets more temptation. He understands it more than anything that we will ever have to endure. So he gets us. And the great irony is that Jesus' contemporaries, they looked at him and, and saw him as the one who was cursed by God. Look at the second half of verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What an irony it is that the one who didn't deserve this is the one who took it. You know, most of us, we have a moment, you know, maybe it's with an old friend, maybe it's with a complete stranger, where we realize that we have a shared experience. And, and not only a shared experience, but a shared difficult or painful experience. And when you have that kind of experience, that moment with somebody who has had the same trial that, that you've had, you have often this moment as feeling like, okay, you get me. Everybody else, they don't get me, but you get me. You've been there with, in this kind of a plight before. C.S. Lewis once said, friendship is the moment one man says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. You know, just having somebody in your life who gets your sorrows and your griefs and your trials, it has a way of really making us feel healthier. Well, 
No one gets us more than Jesus does. No one relates to our griefs and our pains and our trials more than Jesus does. And this uniquely shows him as the perfect kingly fulfillment of this prophecy so many centuries before. This is why the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 2, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, for a little while, lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So Jesus not only understands us, he feels us. And because he feels it at a heart level, not just a head level, he can minister to us. So every two years, uh, we spend Christmas in Mississippi, where my wife is from. And uh, my wife and kids basically hit the road the moment the school bell rang last Friday. They've been up there, and I've been bacheloring it for the whole week, which, don't tell Angela, is pretty great for two days. <laughs> I mean, I got to go to bed early, which is what I like to do, wake up early. I get to eat what I want. I, don't have, I can watch what I want. The house is not getting any messier. It was really nice for two days. And after that, it got really lonely. I, I got really lonely. And I was talking to Angela on Thursday, and she asked me, how are you doing at home You've been, you had been alone this long in a very long time. And I said, it, it is lonely. And honestly, it really, it makes me want to spend more time with widows and widowers. <laughs> you know, just this little hint of, of loneliness that I got. It gave me emotion for people who are experiencing that on a much larger, much larger scale. But as I, you know, I was saying that to Angela, and I'm in this passage, and I'm thinking, no one knows loneliness more than Jesus, which means no one is going to care about loneliness more than Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus who was, didn't just lose family. He was abandoned and rejected by his family. He was rejected and abandoned by his, his closest friends, his, his disciples. When he was arrested, Peter even went so far as to deny that he had ever even known Jesus. Jesus understands loneliness. And if loneliness is something that you're struggling in in this season, no one in this world is going to get that and feel that and be there for you like Jesus will. There's no feeling of loss, no emotional or physical pain, no anxiety or depression or fear or strife or anything negative in this world that Jesus doesn't get and get acutely. And this ability to perfectly sympathize with us in all of our sorrows and our griefs is one of the thing that you, things that uniquely show and qualify Jesus to be the perfect eternal king who will protect and serve us in every possible way for the rest of our life. So that's the first way, that suffering shows the king. And suffering is requirement for this coming king. The second is this. This king suffered to save his people. So think about this question. How is it that somebody becomes a king? I mean, not now in our elected times, although there are parallels. But in Jesus' day, how did somebody become a king? You, okay, you were born into it. That's true. You, you were in, born into a royal line. But to stay king, you had to conquer you had to protect your people from their enemies. And if you were going to be a really great king, you would expand your kingdom through more conquering. And is this not exactly what Jesus is doing for us in his suffering? 
Through Jesus' suffering, he defeated our enemy so that we might be conquered. And not conquered the way that Russia wants to conquer Ukraine. Conquered the way that a knight in shining armor defeats the dragon to conquer his future bride who he loves. It's still conquering, but it's a different kind of conquering with a different heart, a different motivation, and a very different end goal. So how is it that Jesus did this? Well, first... We need to know who our enemies are. We have three main enemies in this life. Sin, Satan, and death. We have a lot of other enemies. You may think some are sitting in this room with you, but those are your three main enemies. Sin, Satan, and death. Because of Satan's activity in this world and our sin to go along with it, death entered the world. There's nothing natural about a soul being ripped out of the body at the end of our life. And at that point, we stand in front of a holy and just God to account for that life. And as we read earlier, we don't have the ability to account for our sinful life on our own. And there will be nothing if there is not something done that will protect us from the wrath of God on that day. But... Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you realize this takes Jesus' human experience to a whole new level? So not only is he experiencing the pain and sorrows and griefs of this world in himself and everything that we would feel, he's experiencing, according to Isaiah, pain and sorrow and grief, so that the ultimate pain, sorrow, and grief, so that we don't have to. He took on the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. So look at our enemies now. Sin. Dealt with. We deserve the wrath of God and we do not get it. Jesus came to bear our sins. And as he was dying on that cross and the sky was going dark, the full wrath of God that all of God's people deserved was transferred to him satisfying the wrath of a just God. I've had, I had a friend once say, well, I get that death on a cross, that would be pretty painful, <laughs> but it's not like there's not worse deaths out there somewhere. Well, there aren't. Because even as painful as it would have been for Jesus as he is suffocating on a cross, hanging by nails, there's nothing compared, and people can forget that he's also taking on the full wrath of God during that time. This is why his stress level was so high that the night before he was actually sweating blood, a real medical condition, when we experience anxiety and stress at the levels that Jesus was experiencing. Our enemy, sin, is dealt with. Second enemy, Satan, dealt with. Because really the only real power that Satan has over us is the right accusation of our sin. So he, his main thing that he can do is come and say, you're condemned. You're condemned because of your rebellion against God. He, he wants us to join him in the condemnation that comes from rebelling against God. And he would be 100% right if not for this coming king. But now we can look back at Satan and say, not anymore. Jesus paid that. There is there now, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus away with you. 
And then the third enemy, death. Verse five, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. So we're, we're not just guilty and kind of let off the hook, you know, left to rebuild our lives and our reputations. We are healed. We are made full. We are made right. We are perfect sons and daughters of the heavenly Father because he looks down on us and he doesn't see our sin. He sees his perfect, righteous son who has traded places with us. So our punishment went to him on the cross and his righteousness comes to us. This is why the Apostle Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So death, while it still exists and while it is not a natural thing, it is no longer a sign of our ultimate destruction. It is now a doorway to eternally live with our king. Jesus has defeated these enemies. He's the only king who has defeated these enemies and in the process conquered us. And all this comes to a climax. In Revelation chapter 5, you remember the apostle John, he is given a glimpse of what is to come, a glimpse of the future. And if you know Revelation, you know the only thing that stands between us and the full reign of Jesus in this world, everything made new, is the scrolls, the closed scrolls. So that takes us to Revelation 5. John writes, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So how is it that he conquered? Or maybe a better way to ask this question, what made Jesus qualified to open the scroll that nobody else could open? The next verse. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, suffering, and by your blood, suffering. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. It is Jesus' sufferings that show him as the king. The king would suffer, and no one has done this in the way that Jesus has. A king who gave everything for us that we might have everything. And so this raises some questions. Have you submitted to the, your life to the authority of this king? Are you walking in his kingdom of light or are you still walking in the kingdom of darkness? And if you're here and you believe in Jesus, you believe that, that he suffered and died for you to make you right with him, to give you access to the Father, is the, his authority over your life manifesting it itself the way that it should? And I could go a lot of different routes here, but I don't have time to, so I want to go one area. 
one specific direction. If you believe that Jesus suffered for you to make, him, to make you a part of his body, are you functioning in that way? Are you embracing being a part of the body of Christ, which is the local church? Is that, does that represent you? Does that, is that the way that you live your life and worship and are reminded of the beautiful truths that God has given us? If you are not an active member in a local body, a local church, to believe that Jesus suffered for you, but not embrace the gift that he's given us of joining his body is not submitting to his authority, and it's not embracing the gifts that he's given you to flourish as a Christian in this life through our grief and through our suffering until he comes back or we go, with him, go to be with him. And he makes everything right the way that it should be. We need each other. And, and if you're new here, it doesn't have to be this church. You may not even live in this town, but we want you, if you are a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of the body of Christ. But if you have placed your hope in the true king and you are blessed by the body of Christ, then you can be comforted in the trials of this life. He is going to be there for you. We can go to him with any pain and any grief and any sorrow, and he's going to get us, and he's going to remind us that though these griefs are here because of sin in this world, that he has paid that price. He has taken away the condemnation coming our way for our sin and opened a door to an eternity where we will only know joy, delight, grace, and love. He is the true comforter. He is our sure hope. So tomorrow we celebrate two things. First, we celebrate the moment in time when our king became like us so that he could truly know and represent us. Secondly, we celebrate the beginning of a life of suffering. The beginning of a life of suffering that would uniquely show him to be the king that we have waited for for so long. So wherever it is that we look in our griefs and our strife and our trials, primarily for comfort and solace, the things that we primarily, primarily go to for comfort and solace, those are our functional kings. But those kings aren't going to give us what we need most because they have not defeated our most significant enemies, and they do not love us. There is only one king who does, King Jesus. And this king, he did this by taking on flesh, entering into this world as a child, and living a perfect life, dying for our sin, resurrecting for, for his glory to be, be seen in us. And so this Christmas, if I can have one plea to myself and to everyone else, is may we celebrate and enjoy his kingship in our lives this Christmas. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have broken into time and space physically in the person of Jesus Christ. And you have done everything that we can't. And it wasn't like Jesus came and all of a sudden now the angry father can love us. You, in the person of Jesus, loved us so much 
that you took on flesh to die for our sins and hand us your righteousness that we may be true children, loved children, the apple of your eye. God, there's so many ways that we do not believe that this morning. Believers, that we don't see that you delight in us and you cherish us and that that's the motivation for us to live for you, not to earn your favor in some way. And there are those of us today that rightly don't see that you delight in us because they don't see the delight that is Jesus Christ yet. And we pray that that would be true. God, we love you. And we pray this Christmas that we would delight in you, our King, given to us to redeem us and save us, not because we deserve it, but because you love us. God, we love you. And we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.